March 25th, 2012, Soho, London, Sunday Feast. So a week from today is the anniversary of the appearance in this world of the incarnation of God, uh, Ramachandra, Sri Ramachandra. And next Sunday, Krishna Willing will be giving a multimedia presentation on the appearance and the activities of Ramachandra. But by request, we're going to be starting to meditate on that today. And we're looking at the Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 9, Chapter 10, Text 52. Vanadi Nadyo Varshani Dvipasandava Sarve Kama Duga Asan Prajanam Bharatashtava. Omaraj Brikit, best of the Bharata dynasty, during the reign of Lord Ramachandra, the forest, the rivers, the hills and mountains, the states, the seven islands and the seven seas were all favorable in supplying the necessities of life for all living beings. We'll read the next verse also, just English. When Lord Ramachandra, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, was the king of the world, all bodily and mental suffering, disease, old age, bereavement, lamentation, distress, fear, and fatigue were completely absent. There was even no death for those who did not want it. Some kingdom, huh? Could you imagine any of our modern politicians promising anything like that? Well, they promised prosperity. But do they provide us with prosperity? Modern governments, do they provide everybody with prosperity? I mean, a few, right? A few people get prosperity. But not everybody. And our prosperity has been at the cost of the environment, and the cost of our health. So there's a, a famous... Hmm, there's a famous business leader, Otto Sharma, he works, he teaches at MIT. And he says that really we should be looking for a spiritual system that combines three things. Personal spirituality, a social system, and a system of working with the environment. So after reading that, I meditated on the fact that in Krishna consciousness we have those three things, and they're particularly exemplified when the Lord as Ramachandra was actually the leading political figure on the earth uh, quite a long time ago. So I want to look at those three things, spirituality, social system, and dealing with our environment. So, and, and they're very much intertwined. You'll see particularly that the social system allows all three to function properly. So spirituality means on an individual level who I am, what's my identity? How do I find inner peace and inner happiness? How do I discover my true self? How do I discover my true place in the world and in the universe? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? How do I find meaning in life? Not just meaning, but how do I find joy in everything I do? How do I find joy and peace, whether there's good situations or bad situations? What is the meaning of death? How do I deal with the ultimate questions of life? So that's spirituality. I mean, there's many organizations and systems in the world that claim to be spiritual or claim to be religious, and certainly many of them actually are, but a real spiritual system should be able to answer these basic questions. Who am I? What can I do so I can find meaning and joy in my life? What can I do to conquer distress? Who is God or what is the cause of everything? What is the purpose of everything? 
what happens at death, what determines why is there suffering in the world, to be able to answer these kind of existential questions. We find, unfortunately, that many of the religious and spiritual systems of the world cannot answer these questions adequately. In fact, many of them don't even attempt to do so. So if you go to many religious leaders and spiritual leaders and you say, who am I, where do I come from, what's the purpose of life, what happens after death, why is there suffering in the world, what's the supreme cause of everything, you get a very vague answer. <laughs> or sometimes you're told simply not to ask the question. And that's actually what happened to me. That was one of the main catalysts for me deciding to become part of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Because I was studying at a theological seminary, and I went to the religious leaders, and I asked them some of these questions, and they told me to be quiet. <laughs> Although I'm not quite sure where they expected me to find the answers if it wasn't with them. So, in a real nutshell and a synopsis, spirituality is that the cause of everything is an unlimited, amazing, omnipotent, omniscient, multi-formed, multi-faceted person who has many, many names, unlimited names, uh, but we like to call him Krishna. And the reason we like to call him Krishna is that Krishna means the all-attractive and all of his other names are part of his being very attractive. He's also called Ram, which means the reservoir of all pleasure. Whatever pleasure that we have, even sinful pleasures, whatever pleasures anyone experiences in order to have any kind of pleasure, that has to be coming in some original form from Rama, from Krishna. And as a person, the cause of all causes, the source of everything, has a personality and has a form. Although he has unlimited forms and his form is unlimited, still he has a form. And he also has activities. And he has an abode, he has a home. He has things that he likes to do. And in fact, that abode is the reality of which this world is a reflection. And it's not a reflection exactly in a mirror, but it's a reflection more in water. It's a shimmering reflection. It's a distorted reflection. It's kind of a reflection in a circus mirror. So everything's there, but the shapes are all twisted and messed up. So whatever we find in this world has its original counterpart in the supreme world of the supreme person. Everything we look for, everything we want, everything we delight in, all the emotions, all the activities, all the exchanges, they have some existence in reality, but in a pristine spiritual form, free from envy, free from strife, and free from distress, with all varieties of joy. And we can get some little indication of those from this world. So that is the original cause of all causes. And there are an unlimited number of spiritual sparks called jivas or souls that live also eternally in this world, also in various forms with various relationships and various activities. But in order to be alive, one must have the ability to say no. That's one of the primary differences between something that's alive and something that's not alive. A machine has no ability to say no. It has no desires, it has no personality. It may mimic a personality due to some programming, but it has no personality really, and ultimately it has no ability to say, no, I don't want to do that. So part of the perfection of the spiritual world is that everything there is voluntary. Everything there is, as our founder said, uh, as he put it, individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. There's only two rules there. Love and don't envy. There's no rule book, there's no bureaucracy, there's no police system, there's not even codes of morality. As long as you love and you don't envy, you can do anything. That's according to Bhaktivinoda Thakur in Bhaktiloka under Niyamagraha, for those of you who want to take some note. Uh, but there are some who can choose. No, I want to envy instead of love. That choice has to be there. If that choice isn't there, then it's not life. 
So because love and not envy is truth, in order to envy and not love, one must be an illusion. So therefore, this material cosmos exists as an illusion, as a dream. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any existence at all. I mean, a dream has some existence. A dream is electrical and chemical impulses in the brain, right? It's something. It's not what it seems to be. It seems to be you're running away from some criminal or you're eating a feast or you're talking to your friends or whatever we do in our dreams. So that's not actually happening, and the way you know it's not happening is when you ask your friend the next day, did I talk to you? And they say, well, no, I didn't have that experience. And that's how we decide it's not real. But something happened. There was something happening. People who study sleep can measure, you know, the rapid eye movements and the chemical processes. So in a similar way, in the material world, something is happening. It's not that nothing is happening. Uh, what's happening in Karnaguna Sangasya? Uh, is that the, what's called the modes of nature are reacting in different ways. And we're imagining that those reactions are our doing things because we can't envy and not love in reality. So you can only do that in a dream world. So the purpose of this dream world is to facilitate people, facilitate living beings who want to do something that's false. I mean, just like in our modern world, every country of the world has some legal intoxicant. I don't think there's any society where there's no legal intoxicants. So the government understands that there are some people who want to live in a fantasy world, at least some of the time. And so they give them facility to do so. Even though doing so is destructive to them and often destructive to others because they will insist on doing so. So also Krishna gives us facility. He allows us to take this intoxicant of the three modes of material nature, which then puts us in a dream world. And it's a collective dream world. It's a very clever illusion. Uh, so it has a very much the appearance of reality to us. We really are convinced that it's happening, and we all convince each other that it's happening because we're having similar experiences. So that's pretty amazing. I don't think that any... Any uh, drug manufacturer, any movie director has been able to produce such an incredible illusion. And why is there suffering? There is suffering because we want to do something that is in opposition to reality. And just like if you choose to exit this room by walking through the wall instead of the door, you will suffer. That is not the fault of the architect. The architect did not design walls for the purpose of causing us suffering. But if we choose to use things in a way that's out of harmony, that's out of reality with the way they're designed, then we will suffer. So if we use our existence out of harmony with what we are designed for, out of harmony with truth, we experience something that we call suffering. Of course, on a higher level, we're not really experiencing it at all. Uh, Just like in a dream, if you're hurt, you know, some criminal shoots you in the dream, you're not actually shot. You're not actually suffering. It's just taking place within the mind. And the key to getting out of this illusion and coming back to reality is to give up envy and start loving again. It's actually pretty simple. The concept is very simple. The execution is a little difficult because we're habituated to envy and as long as we have any envy remaining, we still see things in an illusionary way. So therefore, there's a whole science. If you just tell people, okay, give up envy and start loving, you know, what do you do? How do you start? Where do you begin? So great self-realized souls, they come from the reality to manifest within this illusory world to teach us both by their words and by their example how to again awaken our love. And that's the science that we teach in the Krishna consciousness movement. How to undergo a step-by-step scientific process to reverse ourselves back to our original position so that the illusion gradually vanishes and we gradually start to perceive, we start to perceive the actual reality. Now that's a very individual journey. Although it's best accomplished in the association of people also on that journey. Just like even in so many material fields, you know, if you want to become a good doctor, 
it's helpful to have the association of other doctors. You know, if you want to even be a good golfer, it's good to hang out with other golfers or whatever it is you want to do. You know, there are so many societies uh, for all kinds of interesting things. You know, there's even society, there really is, there's even a society for people who use a particular brand of scissors in their craft work. <laughs> and they have blogs and you know, electronic groups and they have conferences all over the world, you know, the, this kind of scissors users. I'm really not making this up. So it's a fact that when we have association with people who share our same interests, then we become energized, we become enthused. Also, when there's difficulties on the path, we have other people who've already been there, seen that, done that, and can say, okay, this is how I can help you get through that. This is what it looks like from the other side. And it's extremely helpful. In fact, trying to come back to reality, trying to come back to love of God and love of all living beings, and incidentally also love of ourselves, that's included. That's called sometimes Atmarama, one who takes pleasure in the self. Atmarati, one who loves the self. Atmatushtaha, one who is satisfied in the self. As Sri Prabhupada translates it in one place, one who relishes and rejoices in the self. So to come back to love of God, love of ourselves, and love of everyone and everything on our own, without any guidance, is we can say almost impossible. Not absolutely impossible because it's our natural state, but practically speaking, it's impossible. And therefore, we form this society, and we take a lot of trouble uh, to have this society, to have a building, to maintain the building, to pay all the bills for the building, to arrange all of these programs and all of these services, just really to help each other to attain that reality. And there should be, and we're going to link now from our inner spiritualities to society in general, there should be people in society who have this as their main business. To teach spirituality to people in general. To be the guides for spirituality. So in a, so in a proper social system that supports spirituality, there's one segment of the population that have that as their primary responsibility. Now even in our modern society, we have people who at least we, they should be doing that. You know, the professors in the universities, the scientists in the research laboratories, the priests and the ministers and the rabbis and the imams, the spiritual leaders in various religious organizations, they're supposed to be taking that role. Often they don't, though. We have so many people who are leaders in intellectual studies, philosophy, religion, science, who instead of taking that role, lead people further and further and further into envy and strife. There's right now protests going on in America. You can all hear I'm from America, right? Yeah. So there's a protest going on right now in America of the atheist organization. And the leaders are, the leaders are big scientists and big intellectuals. And they're saying, we condemn religion. We hate God. <laughs> so that's where they're taking people to. And it's very unfortunate. Uh, the people who should be taking this role in the society are often maintained by the government or maintained by wealthy business organizations who really don't have truth and spirituality as their priority. And therefore, for the sake of the maintenance of their body and their family and their position in society, and everybody needs those things, we're not denying that, but for the sake of things, such people have sold out to other interests. And it's rare to find somebody who's actually going to, who has the knowledge to share in the first place, and then who's willing to share that knowledge truthfully. So in order to have spirituality in the society, there has to be people who protect truth. So Krishna talks about this in the Bhagavad Gita. Evam parampara praptam imam raja sayogadu sakalena himata yoganasta prantapa. Parampara means one after another. That the truth, this knowledge we just talked about in a very encapsulated form, of individual spirituality. This truth is given originally by God at the dawn of creation. And it's supposed to be passed down from teacher to disciple, teacher to disciple, teacher to disciple. But it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it gets broken. In fact, we can say often it gets broken. 
And again, it has to be fixed, and again, it has to be fixed, and again, it has to be fixed. So there are people who are supposed to be protecting truth in society. They're supposed to make sure that the truth gets handed down without change, that it's taught without distortion, that it's taught without exploitation, that people don't start using religion and truth and spirituality for personal gain and personal aggrandizement and for exploiting people. This happens all the time, doesn't it? I remember taking a friend of mine to the hospital for some surgery. We got there early on a Sunday morning, and at least in America, on a Sunday morning, there are many television stations that play uh, Christian programming. So in the waiting room, they were they had a television on, and they were showing this one Christian leader, and he had a stadium full of people. I don't know how many people it looked like, you know, somewhere between ten and thirty thousand people, and he was saying that you just send me five dollars, he was very emotional and very persuasive speaker, (laughs) you just send me five dollars and we will send you this special magic handkerchief. (laughs) He really said this, I wish that I was making up this story, and you put it under your pillow and when you wake up you will be healed, you will be rich, you will be, you know. So there's so many There's so many people that pervert truth. Or just take this system. I remember also when I first joined the Hare Krishna movement in Chicago that on the the way in the area around the temple there were a number of posters up and they said things like Jesus meditated and became God, the mercy divine. Buddha meditated and became God, the knowledge divine. Krishna meditated and became God, the love divine. And in just six months with our program, you too can meditate and become God. (laughs) So there's all these sorts of charlatans. You know, we have from the people who preach atheism as truth, and the people who distort their scientific studies to sell pharmaceuticals that don't work or even make you sick, and the people who just out and out use religion and spirituality for their own personal gain and to deceive people. So there has to be people who make sure that the truth is passed down as it is, and it's taught by people who have some clarity of heart, taught by people who aren't owned by anyone, who are independent in the society. Now, if there's people who are protecting truth, I'd like you to think right now of a big circle of people who are protecting truth. Now, when they're protecting truth, they also teach everyone how to be protectors of everything in this world of illusion for the sake of truth. And this is a very important point, and it's, it's very subtle. Although this world is a world of illusion, It has, as we said, some existence. It's not illusion in the sense of not existing at all. It's illusion in the sense of thinking it's something other than what it is. So when truth is protected, one sees this world for what it is. And by the way, what this world is, is actually glorious and wonderful. And it's not glorious and wonderful just because there's beautiful sunsets and pretty daffodils and sweet sweet little girls and butterflies. We don't mean like that. It's actually glorious and wonderful because ultimately it's really spiritual. (coughs) Seeing it as material is simply the, the problem of our illusory intoxicated consciousness. So when truth is protected, one can see this world as spiritual, as part of the divine, as an energy of the divine. This is my divine energy, Krishna says. From the point of view of Krishna or self-realized souls, there's nothing material. So how do you see that? You see, this belongs to Krishna and it should be used for him. It should be protected for his glory and for everyone's actual benefit. And when 
this one class of people, the Sanskrit term for them is Brahmanas, when they're protecting the truth, then they allow the next inner circle to create a social system of protection and service. And this next inner circle are the leaders of government. The Sanskrit term for them are Kshatriyas. These are the people who care for people who do what we would call social welfare work. They make sure that there's roads and water supplies and the people have their utilities and their schools and there's medical care, that criminals are dealt with and so forth and so on. But when truth is being protected, then people are being protected also as service to Krishna. The mood of a real government, like the government of Ramchandra, who's Krishna himself, is that of protection and care for the people. Allowing the people to connect with the divine under the guidance of the spiritual leaders. In such a government, a certain percentage of tax money is used for spiritual functions which elevate everyone. That means even if there are some citizens who aren't that spiritually inclined, because part of their money is used for spiritual purposes. We're not talking about sectarian religion. We're not talking about having a state that has an official church and an official religion. We're talking about a universal truth. So when the government leaders make sure that some portion of tax money is used in the service of universal truth and that everyone is protected as a service, then people are no longer exploited by the government. And then we have a reign of peace and prosperity as described under the reign of Ramachandra. But the social system doesn't end there. So we have this outer circle of spiritual leaders who are protecting truth. Then we have the next inner ring of government leaders who are protecting people under the circle of protection of truth. Then inside we have the next circle. These are people who are protecting the natural resources. They're protecting the land, the water, the air, and the animals. They're making sure that all are used in the service of truth under the greater protection and all under the greater protection of the spiritual leaders and all are used in the actual service of the people. For the actual benefit of the people. And then we have the inner circle, which is those people who protect things, who protect the arts and the skills how to make furniture, how to make clothing, how to make tools, how to produce music, how to produce art, how to produce dancing. To create pious pleasures for people in society. Pleasures and facilities and materials and service that are also in harmony with the needs of the environment, respect for the environment, with respect for the people, and finally in respect of truth. So everyone has an area not of exploitation, but of service. Right now, those who are supposed to protect the truth, they exploit the truth. Those who are supposed to protect the people, they exploit the people. Those who are supposed to protect the natural resources and the animals, they're exploiting them. Those who are supposed to protect the arts and the skills, they're exploiting them. Walk here in London, and is the entertainment bringing you closer to truth and spirituality? Are the theaters, the movies, the, the dances, the artwork, the music, is it bringing us closer to truth and spirituality or further away from it? What about our means of production, the things that we buy? Are they made lovingly by hand by someone who's had a parampara of learning those skills? Or are they just being done on a machine where people are just doing one job over and over again in a soulless way without being able to claim any credit or any satisfaction in the result of their labor? So right now, all of these things have been done in a mood of exploitation, in a mood of damaging the self. Of course, the self ultimately can't be damaged. But in a way to increase envy and increase exploitation and take us further and further away from love. 
So those who, the so proper social system is those who protects the arts and the skills and the entertainment. They produce pious, spiritual pleasure and facility for society. Everybody needs entertainment, everyone needs relaxation, everyone needs clothes and furniture and tools and all these things that we have to produce them in a way that gives us pleasure in relationship to Krishna. Those people who protect the natural resources and the animals, what are they supposed to produce? They're supposed to produce honest wealth, real wealth, genuine wealth, not numbers on a computer screen. Then one day you own 50,000 pounds and the next day you own 10,000 pounds although you didn't do anything. It's a, it's a sham, it's a fake. That's not real wealth. It's not based on anything. Real wealth comes from the land, from the water, from the animals. That's where real wealth comes from. Something that's genuine, has actual value, and produced in a way that honors the earth and the water and the land and the animals, with respect for them as the source of wealth. Ultimately, of course, Krishna is the source of wealth. So the next circle, they produce honest, natural wealth. Honest, natural, sustainable wealth. And as we read about in this reign of Lord Ramchandra, they can produce immense wealth. This is propaganda only, that we have limited resources and we all have to exploit each other and scramble for limited resources. We have limited resources when we're exploiting this world can provide us everything we need, more than what we need. Much more than what we need. You know, in former times, that the great deserts of the world were jungles and forests. You know that formerly in Siberia it was subtropical? You know, they found these frozen woolly mammoths up in Siberia, and inside their stomach they find subtropical vegetation. The earth could easily provide in abundance not just for 5% of the population to live richly at the expense of the rest of the population but for everyone to live richly but not if there's cheating and stealing and exploitation. That's the problem. And then those who protect the people, what do they provide? They provide peace and stability and order and care that everyone has whatever they need. Whatever they need spiritually, whatever they need socially, whatever they need emotionally, whatever they need physically. And those who protect the truth, what do they provide? They provide the vision by which everything becomes joyful. By which one can be happy, even in this life real happiness actual inner spiritual happiness they provide the meaning and the value to life the direction for life and they provide the ultimate direction for ultimate life so this is the system that we're presenting a system not just for solitary meditation I mean that's okay but that's not all it is Yes, with our system, each one of us as an individual can come to see truth and live in the truth and come back to our position of eternal divine love for Krishna. We can do that. But that's not all that we're doing. We're also proposing another kind of social system, a social system based on protection and service rather than exploitation. And this social system includes dealings between us and Krishna, between us and the divine, us and our real self, us and all other living beings, people, animals, insects, plants, and us and nature. And in this way, it's a complete view of reality. And if we think this is some kind of a, you know, hopeless, utopian ideal, there are examples in the sacred literature, like we just read from the Bhagavatam, that such societies have existed on earth in the past. And Srila Prabhupada writes in his purports to these verses that through Krishna consciousness they can exist now. 
Now, as some of you may know, there's a cycle of ages on this planet. It works something like the seasons. And right now, we are in the shortest and the most difficult part of the cycle, the winter of the planet that is Kali Yuga, a time of quarrel and strife and ignorance. But even in the winter, sometimes there's a stretch of nice days. <laughs> so even in this Kali Yuga, it is possible to restore the planet, to restore society, and to restore individuals to a place of protection and care and service. And that is what we are trying to do in this Hare Krishna movement. And we need as much help as possible. It's not that everybody has to live in the ashram. That would be a little inconvenient in this ashram anyway. <laughs> but you can get knowledge here from Srila Prabhupada's books, from the practitioners of Srila Prabhupada's books who live here or who work in Krishna consciousness out in the world, and take this knowledge, enhance it, and grow in your spiritual life in this association to whatever extent you want to take it up. And then see in what place you belong. What do you want to protect and what do you want to provide? Do you like to protect truth and provide guidance? Do you like to protect people and provide care and order and peace? Do you like to protect the natural resources and the animals and provide genuine, honest wealth? Do you like to protect the arts and the skills and provide spiritual or at least pious pleasures for society? And then you can see where you fit in the plan of society in general and start doing that in your own life. Start taking it out in the society. Our plan is far, far bigger than our individual temples and farms and, and schools. Uh, our plan actually encompasses the world. That doesn't mean we want to rule the world. Maybe some of our members think that way, but I don't think that <laughs> But it means we want people who are going to go out into society and change the world with the knowledge being given from Srila Prabhupada and from Srila Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So we have about 10 minutes now. If you have questions or comments. Or corrections, additions, subtractions. And we have a mic for you. And remember, next week we're going to be going. We're going to be going over the activities of Ramchandra. We have a multimedia show that will start a little later. We'll start five about five thirty. Five fifteen. Five fifteen. Okay, so that's next Sunday. Hopefully, if everything goes according to schedule, do things go according to schedule here? Um, always. <laughs> always. <laughs> told. Okay, so that'll be five fifteen. Christmas schedule. I just wonder if it was Indian time or German time. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So we will have a Krishna willing, if everything goes well, we'll have a multimedia presentation specifically on the pastimes of Lord Ramachandra. Questions, comments? We have time for maybe one or two later. Yes, if I may. Yes. Uh, we're very grateful for the, the depth of the thoughts that you have presented today for myself. Uh, thank you. Uh, in, in terms of the, uh, you know, obviously in, in Lord Ramchandra's times, uh, perhaps the number of people in this world weren't as many as they are today. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you think that the social enterprise, you know, the businesses which are social enterprises, is that the, the necessary condition to achieve what you, what you described? Okay, first of all, I'm not sure we can say that the population of the world was less than. I mean, we just have descriptions even in Krishna's time about the number of people who died in the Battle of Kurukshetra. So there are obviously very large populations on the earth. You know, if the deserts, if the present deserts and the present Arctic or sub-Arctic regions were all tropical or subtropical, uh, arable land we could support. I mean, even the present Earth could support ten times the population. So I, I don't know if we have any kind of strong scientific evidence for the fact that our population is much greater than it was that long ago. And I'm not really sure if I understand your other question. You're talking about business enterprises. Could you be more specific about what you mean? Because I, I, don't, I don't think you really understand what you mean. You know, there are businesses these days, most of the businesses organize for profit, for shareholders, and there are different kinds of businesses like social enterprises, okay. which is essentially designed to actually share the, uh, the benefits okay. uh, and for the benefit of the people, okay. and, and the profit motive isn't, isn't so significant. Okay. 
Yes. So, so the question was, is, is, is sort of uh, increase in the social enterprise, is that the answer to the... It's problem? part of it. You have to see all four circles. At first you have to have the outer, you must have in place the outer circle of people who are teaching truth to guide everybody in the inner circles how to use things in the service of truth, in the service of Krishna. So that necessitates having certain kinds of businesses and certain kinds of, of wealth-generating enterprises, certainly. That's part of the picture. You can't have a sane and stable society without generation of wealth. So you have to have all of those things. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question. But our main... Uh, mainly we want to make sure that the way we generate wealth is, first of all, with respect and harmony for the natural resources and that it's, it's honest wealth. It's, it should be real wealth, and then it should be done honestly and in the service of Krishna. I, I hope that answers your question. I'm not sure if I, if I have enough. Hi, thank yes. you for that talk. Um, just a quick question. Uh, when you're talking about those four circles, um, do you have to be a uh, Hare Krishna consciousness devotee? Can you be from another religion? Yes, you can be from any religion. It's not just that. Yes. As, long as, that, as long as it's actually a real religion. Okay. Okay, so what, how do you know that something's a real religion? If it answers those questions. If it answers those questions, honestly, yes. Is that relative? Yes, the main way you tell what's a real religion is like, how do you tell what's a real, this is right from Jesus, how do you tell what's a real peach tree? What's your ultimate test if it's a real peach tree? It produces peaches. Or it might be a diseased peach tree or a dead peach tree. But a live peach tree produces peaches. So if you want to know whether or not something's a genuine religion and whether or not it's a functioning genuine religion, it may have originally been a genuine religion and now it's sick or dead. There can also be sick or dead branches of a living healthy tree. That's quite common. <coughs> So the, the main evidence is that people are coming to know God and to love him, that they're, ex they're exhibiting the symptoms of persons who are advancing in spirituality. <coughs> now, of course, on a, on a peach tree, not all the peaches ripen at the same time, so there may be some little green ones there too. So that was what you have to look at, just like it, it says in the Bible, the fruits of the Spirit are. There's a list of qualities and also in our Vedic scriptures, and there's a list of qualities Krishna gives in the Bhagavad Gita. Lists of qualities. So we should find that at least the serious practitioners of that system are exhibiting those qualities. I mean, we're not going to expect that everybody is going to be serious. I mean, even in our Hare Krishna movement, frankly, not everybody is serious. I don't know what the percentage is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could give you my very unscientific, anecdotal experience. Now, where I visit, I'd say at least 20% of the communities are made up of really serious people. That's just very anecdotal. It's not scientific. Don't quote me on that, okay? Because I haven't done any kind of research to come up with that figure. But I consider that a high percentage. Okay, let's see some of the qualities you should exhibit if you're in a genuine spiritual process, following it seriously. One who is not envious, but is a kind friend to all living entities, who does not think himself a proprietor and is free from false ego. He, is, he was equal in both happiness and distress, who is tolerant, always satisfied, self-controlled, and engaged in devotional service with determination, his mind and intelligence fixed on Krishna. He by whom no one is put into difficulty, who doesn't put anyone else into difficulty, and who is not disturbed by anyone, who doesn't get disturbed when other people do things to put them into difficulty, who is equiposed in happiness and distress, fear and anxiety, who is not dependent on the ordinary course of activities, who is pure, expert, without cares, free from all pains, not striving for some personal result, who neither rejoices nor grieves over material things, who neither laments nor desires, who renounces both auspicious and inauspicious things, who's equal to friends and enemies, equipoised in honor and dishonor, heat and cold, happiness and distress, fame and infamy, who is always free from contaminating association, 
who doesn't speak nonsense, who is satisfied with anything, who doesn't care for any residence, who is fixed in knowledge and engaged in devotional service. Can I give you another list? <laughs> One who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they are present, or long for them when they disappear. Who is unwavering and undisturbed through all these reactions of the material qualities, remaining neutral and transcendental, knowing that the modes alone are active who is situated in the self and regards alike happiness and distress, who looks upon a lump of earth, a stone, and a piece of gold with an equal eye, who is equal toward the desirable and the undesirable, who is steady, situated equally well in praise and blame, honor and dishonor, who treats alike both friend and enemy, and who's renounced all material activities. There's more, but I'm just, just going to get you three main ones from the bottom. One who is not disturbed in mind, even amidst the threefold miseries, or elated when there is happiness, who is free from attachment, fear, and anger. One who is unaffected by whatever good or evil he may obtain, neither praising it nor, dis nor despising it. One who is able to withdraw his senses from sense objects as a tortoise draws its limbs within the shell. Some brief descriptions. There's more. There's, we could also go to the 26 qualities of a devotee, uh, which I don't have just handy at my fingertips, but there's many other descriptions. These are the fruits that we should be seeing. So if we see that serious practitioners are starting to achieve these fruits, then we can understand that it's a genuine process. And it's a genuine process that's still being taught in a healthy manner. If we don't see these fruits, then we start understanding that either it was never a genuine process or a genuine process that's become um, somehow diseased or inactive. And that happens. And then again, Krishna or some representative has to come and he has to restore the health of that process. So that's the main way to judge. One has to judge directly by experience. That's the main test. Over and above what you know, rituals are performed and what kind of dogma is being taught. What is actually the result? I think we have to end now, sir. Oh, there is one more question. One more. Okay. Yes. It's up to the boss here. He has to tell me. Johnny Tiger, let me give you the bad news that you're the boss. Sorry to let you know. Yeah, he's the boss, but you're still the... You're at least the COO if he's the CEO. Yes. Yeah, Prabhu, you mentioned Sri Ramchandra. Yes. As a source of all joy. Yes. Are you referring to dharma and righteousness, or can you elaborate this? Ultimately, a dharma and righteousness bring some joy. It brings some. Uh, but that's not the ultimate joy. The ultimate joy is sanatan dharma. The ultimate joy is beyond ordinary duties and beyond ordinary righteousness. The ultimate joy is reawakening, enlightenment, awakening to our original spiritual position, where we're again connected, connected with Lord Ramachandra and with Lord Krishna in loving service. And ultimately, that is the joy that he brings. Although he, there's some joy in Dharma and righteousness also. Thank you. Yes, the verses you were referring to, yes, the qualities of divine qualities. Yes. Can you name those verses? I thought you referred to three, four verses. Oh, when I was just reading from the Bhagavad yeah, Gita, yeah. it's a, a chapter 12, 13 through 20, chapter 14, 22, chapter 2, don't remember the numbers, but they're at the end. 256. 256. 256. No. My, my, these are the checker priests. You know, in every jagya, you have to have checker priests. 256. There's many other places where qualities are good. So you decide. Do we stop now? Any more questions? Yes. The mic, please, please. Thank you, Mother. Very interesting talk, and I did agree with everything I said. So, question about everything you said. Okay. Clarify situation. Okay. You said you think that more people should have shared about equally. 
Uh, I don't think I ever talked about sharing wealth. But you said, but I talked about that everybody could become prosperous. Yes, and rather than that's not that's not the same as the process in Sweden. <laughs> so not everybody would be equally prosperous. Some would be more than the others. Correct. That's right. Are you worried about that? That you have. To? <laughs> I'm just saying, some people don't want to be prosperous. I've given up the job with more money, for less money, so I can have more time. Well, time is also a kind yes. of prosperity. <laughs> it's often a much better commodity, yes. Often, often much more pleasure. But the point of prosperity is, in other words, that everyone can have their physiological, psychological, social needs amply provided for. So there's descriptions in the Shastra of when Krishna was on the planet, when Maharaj Yudhisthira was the emperor, and people would leave gold lying around because they didn't need it. Because they had everything that they needed. So of course there's always going to be some people who are wealthier than others. First of all, some people just have better karma. Also, some people are more interested in wealth than others. Some people just don't care. And even if it's available, they're not particularly interested. But we do want a society where everybody is provided with everything that they need to the extent that there's no anxiety about it. So that's what we mean by prosperity. We don't mean that everyone has a big mansion, you know. A lot of people wouldn't be interested in it. They'd say, well, what do I want to do with this? Then I have to clean it. <laughs> so one, one last question. You had your hand. There's somebody over here. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. What is the highest level of sense happiness? The highest level of sense happiness? Rishikena, Rishikena, Sevanam, Bhakti, Ruchitena. Use your senses in the service of Krishna, then your spiritual senses awaken, then you have unlimited eternal sense happiness. Okay? We're all for sense happy. We have no quarrel with sense happiness. We are not promoting ultimate suffering and austerity. Although some austerity has to be done, unfortunately, in order to attain enlightenment. But we're looking for the ultimate sense happiness. That's pleasing Krishna's senses. And when you please Krishna's senses, because we're part of Krishna, we also become pleased. And all of our senses also become pleased. Actually, genuinely pleased. Would you rather rub lotion on your skin or on a glove? So material sense happiness is like rubbing lotion on a glove. Not very satisfying. Spiritual sense happiness, you're actually contacting the original spiritual senses and you're using them in the original place that they're meant to be used. Just like Srila Prabhupada told my father in 76, he said, if you put good food in the stomach, you have good eyesight, and if you put the food in your eyes, you become blind. <laughs> so our idea of ultimate sense enjoyment is we use our senses in the service of the master of the senses, and then all of our senses actually become satisfied. And if we try to satisfy our senses materially, separately, it doesn't work very well. I mean, you can try it. You know, we've all tried it for a long time, but it's not very effective. Okay, thank you very much. All glorious, we shall have a